0: Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. What I'm going to be sharing today comes out of the past 30 years experience that I've been in and most recently what God's been doing with our move. I've entitled today's message, Seek First the Kingdom, Finding True Treasure Within. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added on to you. This has been a very important verse to me, which I'll explain toward the end of the message. What I'd like to ask you is, what does this verse mean to you? You know, in my pre-grace days, which was a majority of my Christianity, it was about 10 years ago that received a greater revelation of the amazing grace of God. And for me, it was that I gave up everything, I became nothing, he was everything. You know the old saying, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Won't go into that. Could go off on a rabbit trail, but not going to. But what does this verse mean to you? And my second question is, how has your understanding of verse changed over time? Has it or hasn't it? But most importantly, Jesus didn't say, speak these words to you or me. He spoke them to an audience 2,000 years ago. How did they understand his message? And did their understanding of it change over time? These are some of the things that I'm going to be talking about this morning. And I would suggest that we just might possibly gain greater awareness by the time I'm done, of our true treasure within. We're going to begin by diving into the context of this verse, Matthew six nineteen. Jesus begins this by saying, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now I used to understand this, and many still do, that this verse's meaning is not to focus on worldly wealth, worldly gains, that God doesn't want you to have possessions and that those who give up everything they have get the greatest reward in heaven. When I was more entrenched in a a law-based message, that's what I believed. But grace changed my understanding of that. First question that I have to ask about this is God's primary concern regarding holiness, about how many possessions, how much possessions and how much money you have. Is that what it's about? I don't believe so. Now, when Jesus told the Jews, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, the Jews had a unique understanding of earth different than we typically do today goes back to Genesis 2-7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. When we look at the word, dust of the ground here, and man, word for man is Adam, and the word for earth or ground is Adama. same word based on the same root when the Jews looked at ground they looked at Adam they looked at our source that that's what we were now because of Adam's choice what happened to the ground the ground became cursed because of Adam Never, it doesn't say that God cursed the ground what God said is because of your choice Adam the ground became cursed. And what did it produce? Thorns. Okay. Next thing that Jesus says, where moth and rust destroy. The word moth in the Hebrew, according to Easton's dictionary, has an interesting meaning. The root word for it is to fall away. Rust refers to the color of the earth. And I believe here in Jesus' reference, he's talking about the fallen earth, rooted in the first Adam, who became, in his own approximation of himself, destined for destruction. Then Jesus goes on and says where thieves break in and steal. The word thieves there in the Greek, it's a word kleptos, which means to steal by fraud and secret, and then also used in the verses, klepto, to take by stealth. What did the serpent do in the garden? He came in and deceived. He lied. He attempted to steal what they had. Deception. That's what Jesus is talking about. One thing that I want to add, that I've come to an awareness of, is The lie is not more powerful than the truth. The serpent, what he said, what he did, was never powerful enough to undo what God had done. All that the serpent was able to do was deceive Eve into believing that she was not who she was, God's image, God's likeness. And I want to tell each and everyone listening today that you are God's image, you are God's likeness. His breath lives in you. God is a God who calls the things that are not as though they are. You are. And who are you? You are who God declares you to be. Don't let anyone tell you any differently than that. Now what I believe Jesus is communicating at the beginning of this is don't lay up for yourselves treasures in the first Adam, which cause one to fall away from one's authentic, true identity. As my image, my likeness. Instead, lay up for yourselves tr- treasures in heaven, which is the last Adam, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. I've come to realize that as I go through Scripture, this is uh, the Gospels, this is a continual message that I see Jesus teaching. All of his parables, everything he does. It's about discovering your authentic identity. You are not the lie and what the lie declares you to be. You are one thing and one thing alone, who God declares you to be, who God created you to be. And I see that resonating throughout the gospels, throughout Scripture. Then Jesus said, "But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven." Oh, my nice slide? Okay, yep, yeah, it did. Okay. So lay up uh, treasures in heaven. Where's heaven? For most of my life, I've considered heaven, you know, way billions of light years away in the north, somewhere in the sky. But Jesus gave a little bit better understanding of where heaven is and a closer understanding of where heaven is. John 17, 20, and 21. He was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here, see there, for indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Who was Jesus talking to? The Pharisees. And I'm sure the disciples and Sadducees were around too, but what he boldly proclaimed before the cross to Pharisees, who a lot of them here were against his message, he said, God's Kingdom is within you. You who don't believe, heaven is in you. Where's God? He's everywhere. His breath, His life, heaven is within each and every human that has ever existed and ever will exist and ever does exist. The problem is, most people don't realize that. And even when you get to Christianity, a lot of Christians don't realize that either, when we should. Within you, entos, it means exactly that. It is in you. And looking at Scripture, if you go through and do an exhaustive search of Scripture, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are synonymous terms. What's your treasure? I believe Jesus is saying our treasure is not found in the first Adam's attempt and becoming what God declared that he already was. Rather, it's found in embracing our authentic identity made in his image, the last Adam, whom we have always been established by his effort rather than our own self-effort. And we find that heaven closer than we ever imagined. It is as close as our next breath. And what's the word breath in the Hebrew and in the Greek? Spirit, his spirit. What did Solomon say? When a man dies, what happens to his breath His spirit returns to God who gave it. That's what God said. Okay, we make sense out of what God said, but that's what he said. Jesus here is calling his followers to let go of the lie and embrace their true treasure, their authentic identity, his kingdom hidden and protected with him. One of Jesus' first parables, the parable of the soil, he talks about the sower, which is Jesus sowing the seed, the word of God, his living word into the soil. And you know what the soil is? It's you. It's all of us, collectively and individually. Each and every one of us contain all of the soil uh, parts. We all have hard-trodden ground. We all have ground-producing a crop, and some of us We've got a hundredfold crop production going on. Adam, soil, earth. Jesus is talking about us. Then Jesus goes on and says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now a lot of times early in my Christianity and up until around 10 years ago when I started struggling with some of the earlier be- beliefs I had I took these verses as condemning as me having this performance standard that if I did not do exactly whatever I would be doomed Now I was never taught this from the pulpit but I got saved into Pentecostalism and my idea was that Jesus forgave my sins but if I sinned I was destined for hell. And even though I asked him to forgive my sin again, that wouldn't count until midnight. And then if I blew it the next day, I don't know, maybe some of you believe some of those same crazy things. Maybe you do, but that's not the way it is. What it says in Hebrews, one sacrifice covered all sin for all time. One sacrifice. Jesus cannot be crucified again and again and again. Jesus died not for some, but for all humanity that has ever been. He paid the price not for some, but for all. All have been ransomed. All have been redeemed. But not all realize it. What are we to tell people? The good news. Okay, change your ways or you're going to hell. That's not good news. Every time I've done that, I've just put condemnation on people. But now I tell people how loved they are, how accepted they are, how God has an amazing plan for their lives. And, you know, as a college counselor, I can, you know, God even speaks during career counseling with students. It's amazing. God is good. And he cares about the most subtle things, mundane things that we think he doesn't care about. Now, in this verse, when Jesus says the eyes, the lamp of the body, Jesus is talking about how you see things and how you do them is what makes you wicked or righteous. You're not saved, you're not made wicked, you're not made righteous by anything you do. It's all about what He's already done, His finished work. Here Jesus is continuing to talk about his treasure within. He's not going into all these different subjects. He's using different messages to communicate the same thought. He's addressing the importance of our sight. That it's essential that we have an accurate perception of who we are. And when you look in with right now, what are you seeing? And don't lie. God knows how you see. If you see yourself as down here and I'm not worthy... God's not getting a two-by-four and whacking you along the side of the head and saying, get with it. He loves you. What did the prodigal's father do when his son came running home, smelling like pigs and with pig slop and other stuff all over him? He did not let them hinder him. Let that hinder him one bit. He ran and he embraced his son and wept over him. And that is the way your Heavenly Father is with each and every human that has, does, and ever will exist. God is love, and he loves the world. And the world is not a few. The world is all. That's the good news. Are you perceiving yourself and others around you out of the lie or out of the truth? The serpent's lie was very simple. You're not like God. You have to do something to be like God. I used to teach that. majority of Christianity still teaches that same message rooted in the first religion, the lie, that you have to do to become. But what God says is, you are and you have to trust in what Jesus, my son, has already done. You need to trust in his finished work. What did Jesus say? The work of God was to believe in the one that he sent believe in him trust in Jesus first thing we need to throw off is trusting in ourselves that's, that's gonna get us where we need to be and that's what Jesus is addressing here our perception of how we see ourselves and others impacts how we live our lives whether we live them in light or darkness Our perception impacts how we understand and interact with our inner selves, as well as the world around us. What Jesus is saying here, are we seeing out of the lie, or are we seeing out of his truth regarding us and who we are? Then he goes on and says in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and mammon. Well, that's one of the areas that I got out of my belief system that money is the root of all evil. But that's not what scripture says. It says money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money's not evil. And the word money or, or mammon there, it's a noun and it's referring to all kinds of possessions, earning and gains. It's a designation of material value and the God of materialism. What I believe Mammon here is referring to is a lie which the serpent proclaimed in Eden. You need to do something to be like God. You need to do something for God to love you. You need to be do something to be accepted by God. And you know something? I would love to release you from that curse, but I can't do it, and no one here can do it. No human can ever do it. Why? Because Jesus already did it on the cross. When he spread his arms out, and his last words, it is finished. There's no need to break any curses. There's no need to pull those things down. Now, I know there's things going on, but instead of trying to do what God's already done, That's what Adam and Eve did. We need to start speaking his finished work. What did Jesus do? He just said, get out of here. I'm not dealing with you anymore. Kicked all those nasty demons and stuff out to the road, right? Why do we have to come up with all these fancy theologies to complete what Jesus and better what Jesus has already done? It's crazy when we think about it. Who are the two masters Jesus is talking about here? Jesus is talking about our perception, how we see ourselves. The two masters are the first Adam, one's attempt to become what one already is, and the second master is embracing whom God declares we already are, the last Adam. Those are the two masters. You can't serve both. You can't believe in his finished work and still try to... Complete everything on your own. It doesn't work that way. All it does is lead to frustration. And if you're going through frustration, that may be a reason why. And God has some encouraging words for you if that's the case. Then in 25 through 27, Jesus says, don't worry about your life. What's the word life mean to you? Well, what did Matthew use for the word life? Well, we know the Greek words for life are bios and uh, zoe, the natural life and the life of God, the animated life. Neither of those words are used here. It's a word suke, the Greek meaning soul, the mind, the will, the emotions. Jesus says, don't worry about your mind, your will, your emotions. And what comes out of that." And how you perceive that, what you will eat, what you will drink about your body, what you will put on. Isn't your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Who feeds them? Heavenly Father. Okay? Are you not more valuable than they? What you do by worrying can add one cubit to a stature. Don't worry about your life your possessions those things. This isn't what life's about. What Jesus is saying is that it's not those things aren't are evil. He's not saying don't focus on those things. Jesus is addressing the root of the serpent's lie which is our worrying about not possessing what's already ours. Jesus isn't directing about our physical needs or declaring them evil. God knows our needs and provides them. Instead, Jesus here is telling us to focus on true life, on his authentic identity, which is our authentic identity. John 17, 3, Jesus said this, and this is eternal life, Zoe, the life life, uh, belonging to the age, God's life belonging to the age, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what true life is about. It's not evil to want things, to need things in life. And who gives them to us? God. So how has religion made those things out to be evil? Then he goes on in the next verse. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies, how they grow; they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is uh, which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will He not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith! Jesus again is reinforcing: God provides our needs. The richest man in the world cannot outperform God. He talks about the grass of the field thrown into the oven. And anytime we see that word oven, a lot of us, our minds go right to the hot place. And that, uh, I'm going to be tortured forever in eternity. That's the way we've been trained to go with that. It's interesting. <laughs> the word grass there, Kortos, it's a noun. It means the grass or herbage of the field in general. It talks about the lily. It's used for the lilies of the field or hay or grass, cut down and dried. 1 Corinthians 3.12. It's applied figuratively to deceitful works. So it can be good or bad things. But what happens with this grass? It's thrown into the oven. The word oven there, klebanos in the Greek, it's referred to as oven For baking bread. The refuse of our lives, as well as the best of our lives, is burned in the fire for one purpose, in the oven for one purpose, to bake bread. Who's the bread? You're the bread. God allows the things that we go through in our lives for us to learn from That fuels the process into becoming who he declares us to be. How many times have you beat yourself up about the mistakes that you've made? Some of us have spent decades doing that. God says no. That is fuel in establishing who you authentically are in yourself. Stop beating yourself up. Start trusting and believing me and what I declare to you. And then we like to focus on, oh, you have little faith. Jesus isn't condemning, but rather he's encouraging his hearers to move their trust from trusting in their faith to trusting in the faith belonging to God. Now, if you were to read a Greek Bible, if you were able to read Greek, where it says, have faith in God repeatedly again and again and again, that didn't make sense to the translator's who translated it into English? Doesn't make sense. What does God need faith for? You have faith in God. But in the Greek, again and again and again, it's the genitive that's used, which means possession. And what it's saying is have God's faith, have the faith belonging to God. That's what Jesus is imploring his followers to have. And then again he says, don't worry. Testimony of two or three witnesses, let every matter be established. God wants you to know very clearly, don't worry. What do you see in your needs? God's going to provide. You know, last week when we were here, or two weeks ago it was, you know, looking at a new house that we were excited about, but afraid of entering into the, you know, a mortgage and all the things. And Ruby had a wonderful prophetic encouragement for us. It wasn't a thus saith the Lord, this is what God says. No, she just spoke out of her heart what she was hearing from God. And she might not have even realized she was doing it and answered all the questions. It wasn't things that we talked about with her, but it was just, bam, pulling down this stronghold. Bam, pulling down that stronghold. And then it was, bam, that week, we signed a purchase agreement that got accepted. Don't worry. We all have times that worry. Don't worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? After these things... It's what the Gentile seeks. But your heavenly father knows what you, that you need all these things. And he provides these things. Don't worry about the basic essentials of life. God takes care of them. What you need to concern yourself with is your suke, your mind, your will, your emotions. How you're thinking, how you're seeing, how you're processing. Focus on who you authentically are his image verse 33 Jesus says but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you in doing this we will discover all his possessions all he possesses is already ours Jesus is our inheritance. Jesus died. You get an inheritance when someone dies. Everything he promised is already ours. His death gave us life. His life is our life. Verse 34, therefore don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient is a day for its own trouble bit of a confusing portion of scripture here the word tomorrow there in the Greek it means the time immediately after or succeeding tomorrow never comes because when tomorrow arrives it becomes today and one of the understandings of the word tomorrow is or the saying is don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today I believe what Jesus is saying here is, tomorrow isn't reality. The worries that it brings isn't reality. Its troubles are its own, not yours. Jesus then moves from talking about tomorrow, and then he starts talking about the day. And there's actually the article in the Greek, it's talking about a specific day. The word sufficient, architos in the Greek, means sufficient or enough, and it's used in an interesting way. It indicates that to be personally content is helpful to others. And therefore, when one helps others, he senses his own sufficiency. Have you ever heard the saying that when you're going through troubles and it's got you down, that the best way to healing is to step outside of yourself, your troubles, and help someone else? Then you realize, wow, I'm okay. You help yourself. That's the meaning of that. And I believe what Jesus is saying here is embracing our authentic identity, which is his His image, which is his kingdom within us, it's sufficient. It is enough providing all we require. And such personal contentment is helpful to others. When we help others, we come into a greater realization of our own sufficiency within him. How many times have you found that true in your own life? You're down in the dumps. God puts someone in your path. You get to minister to them, and it just totally transforms you. Okay, so what was the apostles' understanding of seek first the kingdom of God? I believe the apostles grew in their understanding of that. Jesus began, one of his earliest words to them was, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's a metaphor. And what did it mean to the fishermen and his group? Won't go into detail on that, but they experienced great joy and excitement with what Jesus said. And then a little bit down the road, Jesus had to give them correction for wanting to call fire down from heaven and consume different cities. No, boys, I'm not like that. And then they argued a little bit later about who was greatest in the kingdom. And then they had exhilaration when they did all the works that Jesus did. But yeah, what happened when Jesus got arrested? It was like someone brought out the raid. Well, that's what happened. It was a raid and they scattered just like the cockroaches, right? You know, I want to debunk the myth. We think the apostles had their acts all together. They didn't have their acts together when Jesus was alive. They didn't have their acts together after Jesus died. So if they didn't have their acts together, you really need to get so bent out of shape that your act isn't together. They were filled with joy after his resurrection. And what did Jesus tell them to do? Take the gospel to where? All nations. Well, what did they do? They kept it to Israel. Israel. It took about a decade. When Peter was fasting and dinner was being prepared, he could smell he was up on the roof, and then God gave him the vision of that big sheet with all those unclean animals in it. Kill Peter. Eat, you oh, know, Lord, never have I eaten anything unclean, right? Don't call what I've made clean unclean. Later, Peter, Peter realized that it wasn't animals that God was talking about. It was people, Gentiles who they did not like, who were destined for the bad place. In saying that, God made all men unclean. I don't care who we put into that, that we detest, that think is worthy of the most unjust action on them. God has made all clean. Seven years after Jesus told them to do it, that's how long it took. And then you know what happened a few years after that? Book of Galatians came around. Some men came from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council, the leadership of the church, and preached, you must obey the law to be saved. You need to follow the law of Moses. Even Peter preached and believed that message. And Paul had to rebuke him publicly in front of everyone. Like I said, they didn't have their acts together. Their understanding changed over time. For the better, for the worse. We struggle with that today. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness? There's three specific times... In my life, I remember God speaking that to me. Not an external voice, but a real, loud, internal, audible shout. The first time was in the 80s when I was attending Oakland University and taking one of the toughest classes I've ever taken, cell biology. Class of 350 students. It was big. It was hard. I started out doing pretty good, but my grades started dumping. It got hard. So, what did I do? God, I don't have much time to spend with you. I don't have much time for church. I pulled away, and I was putting in more time than ever studying. And you know what happened to my grades? They started tanking more. Then I heard God say, I remember sitting at the dining room table with the window behind me. And God, what do I do? And I heard him say, seek first my kingdom. And I knew that that meant, at that time, my understanding was connect closer with him. Okay, if I fail my cell biology, I'll just take it again. I ended up getting the second or third highest grade in the class. but spending less time studying. Seek first the kingdom. Then there was a second time I heard seek first the kingdom. I worked midnight shift in a psychiatric unit for many years and uh, we, our church started out as a Bible study in the home and would have Bible study on Wednesday morning. I never realized I led women's Bible studies uh, but for many years that's what I did. One, one day a lady came in the, in the Bible study and said, oh I'm so excited I've never been to a women's Bible study before. I'm like, oh my, I, I had a little bit of shock in there. Not that I had trouble with women in my Bible study but you know, that's a place for ladies, not for men. But, oh well. So one of the People there said, hey, you know, I I mentioned we were looking for a building. I said, you know, there's one right down the road. Oh, I was so excited. My heart burned within me. Normally, I'd go right to bed after Bible study, but I had to drive down there. Drove in the parking lot. House, or there was a a church in the parsonage behind. I'm like, oh, God, if you want this to be, please let the door be open, that I can walk in. Walked up to the door. It was locked. Walked up to another door, it was locked. There was one around the corner that I couldn't see and I turned the handle, the door was open and I walked in. And then I just got the Holy Ghost goosebumps and I went walking through the building. and I just felt this is my ours. Started walking around the building and then I heard, seek first his kingdom and all this will be added to you. Are you willing to give up everything to build my kingdom. Yes, God, I am. We sold our house so the church could have a building and spent many, many years laboring so the church could have a home. It was very exciting. And I thought that's what it meant to build the kingdom. But then that brings us to our current phase of the journey where a few years ago we just felt a changing. And my prayer changed to God if you want us to move on, you want this place to close, find homes for other people that they could connect with, and guess what started happening? So we started dwindling, dwindling, dwindling until there were just a few of us. And it was good. It It was challenging, but it was good. But I will tell you, and I will be honest, I questioned myself. God, did I miss it? No. It was at this point that I realized, and what God spoke to me, what God ministered to me, is that seeking His kingdom was never about my giving up my money or my possessions. It wasn't about giving up my earthly possessions, but it was about giving up my perception that those were the things, that it was my works, my actions my, me, 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 that built the kingdom. It was about giving a lot of the things up that I believed vehemently spiritually. I believe very differently than what I did 15 years ago. I remember one of the gentlemen that came in our church, he said, God spoke to him and he said, you need to come to a point in your life where you're willing to lay all your doctrines on the altar, all your theologies, and offer them to me and keep what i allow you to keep oh, i could never do that guess what i ended up doing you see what i believe seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness is what i've learned my perception it's not about trying to you know give up things in this world and get things it's about giving up the unhealthy toxic stuff that we've been taught over so many years there's a lot of things that I regret teaching my children. But you know the one neat thing? They might have turned their back on part of the bad theologies. But the character and the integrity that went into them. The heart of God's there. And that's what's important. <sighs> Seeking the kingdom, is about letting Go of the old wine and the old wineskin to embrace the new wine and the new wineskin. It's about letting go of inauthenticity, the inauthentic identity, the lie, and embracing who God declares you to be, whom you've always been. This is what it's about. And I am so excited and so thankful to be part of a church and have a pastor here who preaches this message. And I expect great things to happen in this place. Hallelujah. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you once again for your goodness. And over each and every one here, I speak your blessing. I speak your life. Over this fellowship, I speak your blessing and your life. That you have destined this place and the people here to prosper. I thank you that each and everyone here and listening, that you have a purpose, that you have a mission. And it's for them to enjoy the fullness of life, to embrace the joy that you placed in them. And that is what grace is all about, embracing your joy, which is their joy. And I thank you that I do not have to call down and break every curse that stops in the way because you've already done that. And I declare your finished work over each and every one listening. It is finished. That is God's word for you. And I have one last word for you. You are dearly loved. You are the apple of my eye. Thank you. Be blessed. Amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.